You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen and good morning. Children are making their way. If you are new to Paramount Churches, joining us on our live stream, my name is Rush. I'm one of three pastors here, and I'm grateful that today is a good full day at Paramount Church. We're going to spend some time in God's Word now, and then we're going to celebrate, as you can see behind me, the Lord's Supper. And then this afternoon, our ladies are going to return again for the ladies' Bible study, and then we have some leadership team meetings, and then we have a prayer meeting tonight together so we can be praying for our community, for our church, for God to continue to do His good work in our lives and uh, everywhere that we go. So it's a, it's a good full day here at our church. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, verses 1 through 4. We just have three sermons left, including this morning, in our brief sermon series through the five shortest books of the Bible called Short and Stout. After that, we're then going to uh, move into an extended time on Sunday mornings through a book of the Old Testament called Amos. We want to be well-rounded Christians. We want our, our Bible knowledge and appreciation and truth to be well-rounded, and so we, we want to make sure that we're spending time in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. But this morning, we come to the first few verses of this short book of Jude. Now, as we prepare our hearts to think about what this book will tell us, what God has to say to us, I want to ask you to think about two questions. The first question is this. Thinking about your life, thinking about how your life is going right now, how good has God been to you? You you might think of this on a scale of 1 to 10. Think about your life right now, all of the things going on, what your days over the last few weeks have been like, what you anticipate coming forth in the future. How good has God been to you? A a 6, maybe a 7, maybe an 8. For some, you may answer a 9, maybe even a 10. But now answer the second question. And the second question is this. How good has God been to you? Now, you see, it's the same question, but there's two different perspectives. Sometimes we answer that question from the perspective of our own viewpoint, our own perspective. And we tend to look at the circumstances of our lives, the struggles, the disappointments, and sometimes that number starts to drop, drops down from our perspective to an eight, seven, six, five, in really bad times, maybe lower. But the second question, which is exactly the same as the first, is asked from God's perspective. Try if you can, according to what you know of our God, what you know of his word, how good has he been to you from his perspective? Well, we know because our God is sovereign, he is wise, he's good, that that number is always 10. That's the good news of of faith in Jesus Christ, is that because of his covenant faithfulness, because of his incredible love for us, he's never holding out. He's never withholding something from us that could do us more good, but rather he is always giving to us his very best. He is always giving to us a 10. And the greatest way 
that he has been good to you, if you have faith in Christ this morning, if you are redeemed by grace alone, you've been brought into his covenant family, your eternity is secure. Every moment between now and the very end is all set and planned for you, orchestrated by a God who loves you. The most important way that he has done you good is by delivering to you your faith. By delivering to you his grace, his redemptive purposes in your life and mine. Today we begin just a few sermons, just three, in this short book of Jude. And we hear in this book an important call, especially this morning, to contend for the faith. To contend for that faith that was delivered to us uh, in the most extravagant expression of God's goodness to us. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for us to contend for the faith? Well, that's what we're going to try to learn today and over the next few weeks. And we're going to do that this morning, though, by observing what, what really drives our interest as Christians in contending for that faith. And what drives us, as in every area of life, are motives, divinely revealed, given, ministered to our hearts, motives for contending for the faith. So we're going to see three motives for contending for the faith this morning. If you're taking notes, you can prepare just three places to write these down, and then maybe some notes to help you understand what the Bible means across these verses. And we pray that God will work in our hearts to to strengthen us, to challenge us, to give us an increased view of his goodness and to encourage us to contend for the faith just as he challenges us to this morning in the book of Jude. Well, Jude is, uh, like the other books we have been studying recently, a short, hard-hitting letter to a church that has been infiltrated by teachers who actually were practicing evil. And so we come here to the first few verses, actually the first two verses of Jude, and we find this typical greeting with letters in the New Testament that begins with the name of of the person writing, Jude, and and he refers to himself as a bondservant. That's the word doulos in Greek. It's a word that also could be translated slave. It's the lowest of the the servants as someone who has been completely humbled underneath underneath a master and is serving wholeheartedly. And he refers himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, who is this Jude? There's been some questions about that over the years, but he tells us here that he's the brother of James, the brother of Jesus, who we know. And he's writing this letter to those who are in a church where false teaching has infiltrated the church and has slipped in unnoticed. Now, it seems as we read through the rest of the verses this morning, you'll see this in particular, verse 3. It seems that Jude had, had sat down to write a letter to talk about their common salvation, his and theirs, those who would read his letter. And then either because of a growing concern in his heart that God had given him, he either redirected the writing of his letter or perhaps he wrote another letter so that he could address what was going on in their church and he could challenge them and encourage them and equip them to contend for the faith. And so here he is writing to these believers 
And he begins here, which I want you to see, what I think is the first motive. If, if you want to be a Christian like I do, who contends for the faith, the first motive is our gratitude. Notice how he encourages them. He, he's trying to give them assurance and, and confidence. He's, he's increasing their, their view or, or aligning their perspective with God's perspective, just like we tried to do a moment ago, asking that same question in two different ways. And I want you to notice the way that he speaks to them, the way that he views them, the way that he wants them to see themselves because it's central to how they will be able to contend for the faith. He says he's writing to those who are three things, the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Anytime we see those important words, it's, it's worth our time to slow down and ponder them just for a moment each. I, I want to do that now. Notice first, he says, to those who are called. The word that he uses here is a word that, that would often be used of calling someone or inviting someone to, to something like a banquet. It is to call out to others with, with great hospitality and welcome to welcome them in. And to welcome them into this banquet, to a celebration. And of course, we know from the gospel, as it is explained to us, revealed to us in the Bible, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, that that is exactly what God has been doing. He has been calling people like us to his banquet, to himself. And so he wants them to remember, perhaps something that they were forgetting, in the midst of all of this, this tension and trouble, that their ultimate hope was in the fact that they had been called. But not only called, they were also beloved. Beloved in God the Father. Here is another word. It's a word that may sound familiar to you if you know a few of the common Greek words that get a lot of press in sermons, especially those that have to do with love. It is the word agape. It means that someone is, is pleased with you. You know, sometimes we call people to something, but it's not because we're very pleased with them. So, sometimes I, I, I call my children to myself because something's gone wrong, because I'm displeased, because there's some kind of correction that's needed. But rather here, what is he saying? You have been called to God in his pleasure. He is pleased with you. And of course, we know he's, he's not pleased with us because of anything that we have done. He's pleased with us because of what Jesus, the Son, has done. It's because of the Son, because of his perfect life in our place, because of his sacrificial death in our place to take our penalty, and then his miraculous, powerful, glorious resurrection that we are beloved like these believers in God the Father. Because of the Son, we are called, we are beloved, and with them, kept, kept for Jesus Christ. That's such an interesting thing to say. It is a way of, of tying up this whole picture of who people in Christ are, that they have been called because God has chosen to, to set his love and pleasure on them. And then he so loves them that he ties it together by promising that they will never no matter what they do, no matter what anyone else does, they will never get away. He says also 
that they and we are kept for Jesus Christ. We are kept. It means to keep something in a state, to hold it together. You're seeing a whole picture together of those who are loved, those who are invited, and those who are held by the God of the universe. Kept. That's where it all comes together, doesn't it? That we and they are kept. It's increasing. I hope you feel it. I hope you're feeling it in your heart as you hear those words. Do you believe those words? The more that you do, I hope this morning you're feeling your gratitude rise. If you know anything about what you and I and they deserve, your gratitude will skyrocket when you hear that you have been called, that you are loved, and that he by grace alone is keeping you. Parents, you know this feeling. You know this, this feeling, especially when your children are, are, are smaller and, and they're really cuddly and they're warm and they wear onesie pajamas and they climb up in your lap and you hold them and you wrap them up and they just they snuggle in like a little grizzly bear cub and they're just kind of wallowing, wallowing in your arms. And what do you say? Oh, don't grow up. I want to freeze you just like this. I want to keep you in this state, in this place, in this experience forever. And of course, we know we can't do that. That's not God's plan. He has even more prepared for our children. And yet there is a picture in that fatherly, motherly care where God is keeping us. He is keeping you. Hey, he's not keeping you as a baby. In fact, he's growing you up. He's not keeping you just so he can, he can feel snuggles. He's keeping you in his love. He's keeping you in his pleasure. He's keeping you in his calling. And this is so very important. If you know anything about the world, if you know anything about your own flesh, your own sinful nature, if you know anything about the devil, you know how very important this is. And it ought to be the treasure of our hearts. We are living in a world, if you have not noticed, that is cruel. It is warring. It is hateful. It is full of misery. Yes, you can look out there and there's all kinds of things we give God thanks for. The world still has a lot going for it, but only by grace. Because when you really look into the inner workings of this fallen world, you see what I see. You see misery. This comes up in, in our church's catechism, which is a take on the Heidelberg Catechism from long ago. The second question and answer goes like this. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? That's the comfort of being kept in, in God by Christ and his grace. Here's the answer. Three things you must know. 
First, how great my sin and misery are. Do you know that? Do you know how great your sin and misery are? Well, the answer to that question at the outset is no, you don't. I don't either. We don't have eyes to see just how great, that's part of the problem, just how great our sin and misery is. But we're learning. God is showing us as we look around the world, as we look into our own hearts, as we look at our, our enemy, the devil, and all of his plans and the way sometimes we, we fall in with those plans. You must understand how great your sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery by grace, through the gospel, by hearing with faith the good news of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again so that he would call us and love us and keep us and hold us. And then finally, third, how I am to thank God. Those are the words of gratitude. How am I to thank God for such a deliverance? You are getting a picture of the very best place in the universe that you can be. And that is in Christ alone. It's only in Christ, according to the word of God, by grace alone, through faith alone. It's only in Christ that you can know this reality of being called and loved and kept forever by a faithful father and king. That's why the Bible is, is so serious about this. That's why we want to be so serious about our faith and contending for our faith and making our faith known and, and guarding and protecting and nurturing the faith of our hearts, of our church, because there's nothing more important. It's why you've heard these words before as, we, as we've worked through passages of the Bible in 2 Peter 1. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. That's the call, that's the love, that's the keeping. Make certain. It's an encouragement to make certain you're in Christ because there's no better place to be. There's no, again, you did it again. I turned that off. Now, it was funny the first time. It's not funny the second time. I'm trying to be serious. Because this is serious. There's nothing more important that you can do than make sure that you are in Christ. He goes on, he says, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. These are words of gratitude. And that is a central motive for every Christian who feels his or her need for Christ and to contend for the faith. If you want to, and I hope that you do, I want you to, and I want to contend for the faith Begin, begin, begin with gratitude by beholding in the face 
of Christ, the very grace of God that has done all, accomplished all for you, and then has brought you into this family. I've gotten to know some people recently from Britain, and I've emailed back and forth with them, and I've noticed some of the ways that they just talk differently than I do. Sometimes it catches me off guard. I think it's super interesting. One, one of those things that just keeps coming up, it seems like every British person I know will say that, that when you need to check on something, they will say, I need to chase this up. I guess it's a version of ours. They, they chase up, we chase down. But you see, it's that, it's that language. It's that language that I find so central to the Christian life that it is an ongoing, though we're kept and held in love, it's an ongoing chasing. Chasing up and chasing down. What should you be chasing? At least one thing we should be chasing is we gotta be chasing gratitude. It is so easy to lose this. Gratitude, not just for the great things that God gives us. He's given us so many gifts to enjoy and we enjoy them but I'm talking about ultimate gratitude. Ultimate gratitude that is what makes verse two possible. Where Jude says that because he's keeping you, because he loves you, because he's called you, he wishes upon them mercy and peace and love to be multiplied to you. Think about these believers. They've got these problems in their church. There's people, as we'll see in a moment, who have crept in kind of unnoticed, and all of a sudden they're, they're in there and they're wreaking havoc by, by confusing people about the truth and, and taking away their assurance, and it's a big mess. And he is wishing them what they need, right? Mercy and peace and love multiplied. In our focus today, this is the first motive that I want you to see about contending for the faith. And therefore, it means that in order to contend for the faith first, we must embrace daily. Here's your first application or use of this text. If you're taking notes, embrace daily. This reminder of your identity, come back to this verse. Don't just cast away the greetings of New Testament letters as though it's just, it's just pleasantries. It's not. It's packed full of truth, just like this little letter. Embrace daily this reminder of your identity. In Christ, you have been called by no interest of your own. It was his interest in you for his own divine purposes that led him to call you. It was his love for you, not your love for him, that led him to love you. And it's his own power and his own jealousy and his own fatherly love and compassion that is what's keeping you in Christ. Let's make our gratitude soar by remembering this identity, which in reality is not really about our identity, is it? We're not talking about getting our identity straight. We're getting Jesus' identity straight. We're seeing who he is, what he's done for us. And that brings us to the second motive. Here's the second one. The second one that we see as we look at just verse three is stewardship. Now listen to this. It's another motive. It's another uh, reason for us to contend for the faith is stewardship. Notice in verse three, he continues on this line of encouragement and, and building up the love of their faith by calling them beloved. Beloved, he says, 
while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he's, he's rallying them close to himself that, that God is working in different places at different times with different people, and he's brought us together into a common salvation. He says, I felt the necessity. Now notice here in just this verse, this major theme that's going to play out across his interaction with them, even just right here. And it's the theme of earnestness. It's the theme of, of seriousness, of, of, of energetic living and desiring and, and wanting and walking. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you in the midst of either this letter or, or a different one, appealing that you contend, here it is again, earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Do you see this? Necessity. I'm making every effort. You must contend earnestly. He so believed this was important that he says, that he is making every effort. And because he's making every effort, what does he want them to do? He wants them to make every effort. That's what it means to contend earnestly. This, this language of, of contending is language that would common, co commonly come up in, in places like the military or in athletics. It means to strive with an intensity. It means to struggle with an intense effort. For the military picture, it is to fight. For the athletic realm, it is to run. The Holy Spirit himself caused Jude to feel this necessity because it was necessary. And therefore, he's appealing to his readers to contend for the faith, to strive with intense effort, with intensity for the faith, to fight, to run. He is concerned. He's concerned for where they are, and he's concerned that they fight and run. I have to tell you, you may feel this too. When I look at the church at large, especially around our country, and around the world, I feel this same concern because I don't see very much contending for the faith. I see a lot of contending, but I don't see a lot of contending for the faith. The faith being that, that collective teaching that God has revealed to us about who he is and what his world is to be and what his purposes in Christ are. All of those truths that come together in his all-sufficient word and they land in our lives and they work out all the corners of, of our life, contending earnestly for this. We contend for politics. We contend about possessions. We contend about reputations and personal preservation. We contend about nations but there's just not very much contending for the faith. Why does he want us 
to contend for the faith. Remember the second motive is stewardship. We are to contend for the faith because what it says at the end of verse 3 is that this faith for which we contend was once for all handed down to the saints. It's the language of entrusting something to us. He has taken us, he's taken his, his faith once for all, and he has granted it to us. He has handed it down to us. Therefore, we are to contend as stewards of it. He's handed it down to us as his saints, as his people. Remember, it goes right back to the first, first couple of verses that we were called and loved, that we are being kept, and he has given us this beautiful thing called the faith. Once and for all. Well, then we have to answer the question, how then, how then do we contend? What does that mean to contend for the faith? I think that there are two big ways that we do this. Here's the first. We, of course, must do this in word. We do this with our words. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as we all know, and we rehearse so often in our church, is not a list of commands. It's an announcement. It's something that God has announced to us that we, we hear. We don't ever do the gospel. We don't ever live out the gospel. That's not what the gospel is. It's actually an announcement that we hear. It's a message that we herald. And therefore, the first way that we contend for the faith is to herald that good news. That's how we can be stewards of it. We can take it and we use it in the world. We make much of it in the world by word. But also, even though we don't live out the gospel per se, it does have something to do with our lives, doesn't it? it? It has something to do with the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we act. Because all of those things either come alongside and, and undergird that message to, to bolster the, the credibility or to shine a light on its, its realness, we contend for the faith. Listen to the way it's put in 1 Peter 3, which is very much similar between these two letters. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.13, to people in a very similar situation, struggling, hurting, suffering, concerned, he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Don't be troubled. But do what? This is where you're going to see these two things. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's, that's the ultimate starting point. That's where we, we're building this gratitude. That's where we're sorting out this identity that we have in Christ. He is Lord. And so we sanctify Christ as Lord first in our hearts so that our hearts are, are wanting to glorify him and please him and to make much of his good news and to announce his announcement. And we do that first. Here's that first part with words. He says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. There's a lot of words there. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. 
That's with words. Ready with words to make Christ known, to contend, to fight, to run for the faith. And then here's that other part. It's always paired together. It has to do with our lives. We are not just about, as Christians, talk. We are also about action, the way that we live. He goes on and he says, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, he's telling us you're going to be slandered when you do this, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. They will say all kinds of things about you, but in the end, they cannot deny that you actually practice what you preach. You actually follow through and live by what you believe. This is what it means to be a steward of the faith in word and action, in speech and in heart. But again, you see, you see what we read in verse 15. Where must it begin? What is at the center? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. That is to sanctify him, to, to uplift him in your heart as your treasure. That's how you contend for the faith. When the faith that you've been given, it's been delivered to you, is your treasure. You must hold it as your treasure, but before you hold it, you must see it as your treasure. So stop for a moment and think to yourself right now, before the Lord, ask yourself another important question. Is Christ my treasure? Is the faith delivered once and for all to me as one by grace of the saints my treasure? Jesus and the faith can be at times in the lives of Christians different things. They can be things that are good but not quite treasures. They can become tools to fulfill some expectation or purpose, but not quite treasures. Sometimes we get going in the routine of the Christian life, don't we? And we just entirely overlook this treasure. Well, if we're going to contend for the faith, if we're going to be stewards, it requires that we see this treasure, that we come to know just how valuable what has been delivered to us is. Not unlike a few years ago, a Filipino fisherman who had 10 years prior, in the course of his work, found at the bottom of the water an enormous rock. It was unlike anything he had ever seen before. It was beautiful. It glistened. It was, it was white and, and shining up through the water, he saw it, and somehow he, he pulled it out of the water, probably with the help of, of another fisherman because it weighed about 75 pounds. And, and he felt that this was such a, such a catch that it would be a, a, a good luck charm that he should hold on to if he could. So he, he lugged it home and he slid it under his bed, and that's where it stayed, right under his bed where he slept as a good luck charm for 10 years. And then one day... His house burned down, 
And when his house burned down, he had to take what was left, and this, this good luck charm that he had found was left, and so he, he picked it up and he took it into town, and someone saw it and took an interest in it. And they were able to do the necessary testing and observation to confirm it was not a rock. It was the largest pearl ever known to man, valued as pearls are valued at $100 million. This poor fisherman with a $100 million pearl under his bed for 10 years, underestimating, underestimating what a treasure it was. So common, so common for us. Isn't this what we constantly go back and forth in? Constantly going back and forth. Thank God he is gracious that he would give us such a treasure like the world has never seen. And I slip it under my bed. It becomes a good luck charm. But if we could see it, if we could hold it for the treasure that it is, we would steward it. We would contend for it. Just like we read in Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, the reality for every Christian is this. It is not whether or not you and I are stewards. It's what kind of steward you will be. A steward is not made a steward by stewardship. A steward is made a steward by receiving something worth stewarding. And every Christian has received that, the faith that has been handed down once for all to the saints. It is our treasure. But is it our treasure? We want to be stewards of this gospel we want to be stewards of, of the faith. We want to contend in heart and in life, in word and in deed. We want this to be our, our number one. But that means we have to stop contending in order for us to start contending. We have to push aside these other things that are crowding out our contention for the faith and run, fight, just as God has told us to. And that is, what, that is what our world needs. Now, how can we do this? How can we contend? We're going to see the last motive here, and the last motive is protection. That we would protect the gospel, that we would steward this faith that's been delivered and also protect it, which is, of course, included in stewarding, in our gratitude, that we would protect it. But we contend for the faith ultimately. Why? Because God is contending for the faith. Ultimately, because he is the one who is caring for things. And yet, he has made us a means of that perseverance, of that protection. And that's where we come to verse 4. This is the last verse for this morning, and then we'll bring this time to a close and celebrate the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed 
Certain persons have crept in unnoticed, no doubt, as we will see in a moment, to do harm. To do harm to this faith that has been delivered, to detract from it, to slow it down, to marginalize it, to hold it down and pull it away. But we know, just like this fisherman that we thought of a moment ago, just like these believers who have been given with us the faith once for all handed down to the saints, just like with everything we treasure, you protect what you love. Which means everything you love, you are on guard. You are in tune with the threats. Are you in tune with the threats? That may be why we have seen so little contending for the faith. We're not in tune with the threats. The caution of this text is that some destructive and deceitful people had crept into the church unnoticed. Notice what he says. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And you ask, how in the world? You, heard, you just heard the way they're described. How in the world does that happen? I don't know but it does. Their guard must have been down. How do people creep in unnoticed? I read recently a story that I'm told is true from a, a horror author named Grady Hendrix. He tells about this real experience that fueled some of his writing and, and probably had a pretty significant impact, maybe have traumatized him a little bit, which is, comes out in his stories. But he says when he was nine years old, he heard something downstairs in the kitchen. And so he slipped out of his bed and he walked downstairs and he found a man standing in the kitchen making a sandwich. He was so afraid that he just slipped back without being noticed, went back upstairs to his bed, pulled the covers over, and the next day he told his parents, and of course they did not believe him, that somebody had been there. This continued to happen like 19 other times, and no one believed him until eventually they find out that someone had been living in the walls of their house and died there. Talk about crept in unnoticed. You see, this is what is so concerning about the church, where the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints, and yet, and yet it needs to be protected. We see the world that we live in. Here, these believers are, are contending. They need to be contending. They need to be fighting. They need to be running because of these creepers who have crept in unnoticed. What was the big problem with them? Let's just notice again three things. First, they're referred to as ungodly persons. They are not like God. They do not have the same motive. They don't have the same pursuit as other believers in the church. They're not there because they want to be like God. They're there because they want to be unlike God, and they would like others to be unlike God. And in order to pull that off, they're quite clever because the second thing we learn about them is how they do it. They pervert the grace of God. 
into licentiousness. That means they're abusing grace. They're doing what Paul said, may it never be, that we should sin all the more so that grace may abound. You see, maybe that's how it happened. Maybe that's how they crept in unnoticed is because they came in talking a lot about grace, but only so that they might abuse it. They might pervert it. And then finally, you see why they did this. Because number three, they deny. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They are not his servants. If we're going to be good stewards, if we're going to act on the gratitude that he's given to us, this must be part of our MO. Protection of the gospel. Because it's so easy for those to slip in, for untruth to slip in. And we want to know our Bibles well for that very reason. Another disturbing story about how this can happen is a story about someone named Dennis Rader, who was probably more famously known in Wichita as BTK, famous serial killer. From 1974 to 1991, he committed 10 gruesome murders. And somehow he went unnoticed all of these years. The city's in a panic. They can't figure out who he is or where he is and try to take him down and give him justice. Even one of his murders involved taking a body to a local Lutheran church into the basement and photographing it before he dumped it somewhere else. And even then, they, they couldn't put all of that together, not for years and years and years, until finally some DNA testing led them to their man, and they found out that all the while he was right there in the town, he was actually the president of the Christ Lutheran Council all those years. Married, children, crept in unnoticed. It's that kind of thing that Jude is concerned about. And for these reasons, Jude says they are marked out for condemnation. There's nothing more serious than that. And therefore, there's nothing more serious than that we would contend for the faith. But again, we do this with hope, don't we? We don't do this out of fear. We don't do this because we, we think all will be lost. We do it because we know that all will be one. God is contending for the faith. He will contend for the faith to the very end. And on that final day, when he gives the roll call of heaven, not one name will be missing. You saw that movie maybe when you were younger like I did, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he's always missing class, and the teacher's saying, Bueller, 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 he's not there. That will not happen in God's kingdom. Why? Because he is contending for the faith. We are the means, and we want to be used by him. Therefore, we can do the opposite of the creepers. That's what he's called us to do. It's the final use of our text this morning before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that is that we would focus on, on these three things. We might bring all of this little text together and focus on these three things. Number one, live holy. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Watch one another. Number two, abound in grace, revel in grace. We don't want to pervert grace. We don't underestimate grace. We want to revel in grace. We want it to fuel our gratitude. And as a result of that, we want to embrace, not deny. We're going to embrace Christ 
every day as our treasure. Well, of course, that begins by faith in Christ to start, that we would repent of our sins and place our trust in him once and for all because he's delivered the faith once and for all. And so perhaps that's something that you need to do today. You need to repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus to follow him, take him seriously, take him in his word, join his people, and then joyfully contend for the faith. We pray that will be true for you today. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have some instructions on coming up and, and taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for, for its hard-hitting impact on our lives. It shakes us awake. We pray that's true today, that it would shake us awake, not shake us into fear, but to shake us into hope, shake us into action, shake us into gratitude for what you have done for us. We are so grateful that you have called us, that you have loved us, and that you keep us all by grace alone. And oh God, we pray that you would give us the tools and the hearts of stewards so that we can steward this, this good news, so that we can magnify your glory and your grace to our good and the good of others every day. And, oh God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what is going on in our world when truths and other people want to come against, wants to come against the truth of your word. We pray that you'd help us to be protectors, that we'd be wise, that you would use us. We want to contend for the faith, and we need your help. We pray that that you would minister to us by your grace as we take the Lord's Supper today, uplift our hearts and strengthen us, Clear our minds so that we can focus single-mindedly on you to run and to fight because you run and fight for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.